it's time to talk about all things mental health. This is Get Mental with Cecile Ahrens. As a seasoned licensed therapist, Cecile is the owner of Transcend Therapy and is here to inform, guide, and connect you on the big and small everyday happenings that affect our mental and emotional well-being. Cecile is passionate about making a lasting and positive impact on people, connecting them to their own wisdom and strength while having a little fun along the way. Get ready to challenge the power of your human spirit. It's time to get mental. And now here's your host, Cecile Ahrens. All the things they say should matter, corrupted by the senseless chatter. Hi, everybody. Hope you guys are having a better week. Hope you all are staying hopeful and strong and objective and curious, like I always talk about. So today I wanted to piggyback on what we talked about last week, and that was on the subject of making sense of political violence. Today I wanted to enrich our knowledge and understanding by talking specifically about violent extremists and I want to talk about the research, the, the statistics, the, um, the factors that uh, tend to make somebody vulnerable to being radicalized and being um, a violent extremist, basically. So I am going to start with um, the FBI. Okay, again, I'm going to give you guys, I'm going to rely heavily on some of the literature and the research that I did. Granted, you know, I don't have the, uh, the luxury of spending a ton of time researching these things, but I'm really trying to bring science to the streets. That's one of the mission and vision of Get Mental, is not only to destigmatize mental health through our hashtag, we all have issues, but also to really provide quality information backed up by science to the extent that I can uh, do that through our hashtag and mission, Science to the Streets. I want you guys to be equipped with the right information because so much of our national media is you know, really focusing on the emotionality of what's happening to our country. And yes, that is a uh, factual component to it, right? There's a cause and effect, but it doesn't serve any of us if we don't have the right information and the right data. So hopefully this will help you guys continue to make sense of what is happening in the United States. So um, why do people become violent extremists? So that, I guess that's a f great question to start off with. Um, according to the FBI and according to, you know, many um, people in academia, you really, and mental health like myself, you really can't pinpoint the cause just based on one issue or factor. There's no like magic formula or magic kind of uh, number of symptoms. You can't really uh, accurately profile a person or predict somebody who's going to become a violent extremist just based on like a, a checklist of things, okay? So that is what also makes it complicated because it's not that simple. What we really look at is a cluster of symptoms and how those symptoms relate to one another and the overall context in which that person is um, belongs to, in which they're kind of uh, living in. And we do our best 
to make the most educated uh, assessment and prediction based on theories about violence, based on understanding on our understanding of it, and based on the risk factors. So, you know, back in the day, I used to do a lot of what's called threat assessments, and they're very complicated. And yes, there are some predictable factors to, to violence and risk factors that we know are, are tried and tested, but it's just all, it's still unique how that person um, is going to, you know, kind of process uh, the information that they're being given and, you know, become radicalized. Like, it, that's not a uh, an exact science yet. But what we do know are some risk factors. Again, we look at the cluster of symptoms, right, and the cluster of circumstances that put a, a particular person at risk. So I'm going to talk about that and I'm going to talk about statistically who tend to be, which group, either the far right or the far left, tend to be, uh, tend to engage in violent uh, political uh, violence and become, you know, an extremist. So it's very interesting. So uh, back to the FBI. So the FBI is basically saying that a lot of times the, the people who tend to uh, become radicalized and really, you know, um, buy into these ideologies and, you know, believe that violence is the only way to, to create whatever change they're hoping to create is essentially trying to fill a deep personal need, okay? And they kind of categorize the personal needs, you know, very broadly um, in the areas of power, personal need for power, personal need for achievement, personal need for affiliation, personal need for importance, purpose, morality, and excitement. So, you know, it's very broad, but if you really kind of stop and think about that, it makes sense, right, why someone would be at risk if they have these unmet needs. It's interesting because the FBI actually calls them unmet needs. And for those people who have worked with me long enough, and if you've heard some of my talks long enough or enough, you would know or recognize that I also talk about unmet needs because in mental health, that is a big focus, at least for me as a therapist, is helping people understand what the unmet needs are because that's usually where the point of suffering is with a lot of us. You know, there are needs of the moment that are not getting met that's creating us to feel, think, and behave in a certain way. So I, I was pleasantly surprised, well not surprised, pleasantly pleased, I guess, in that there's a similar kind of psychology or, or understanding um, around this topic when it comes to law enforcement, trying to analyze it and trying to, you know, figure out what the patterns of behaviors are. So personal needs, unmet needs are very, very, very uh, common. Unmet needs um, when somebody is at risk for becoming a violent extremist. And again, I'm going to, uh, somebody just joined our group, so I'm going to repeat that. According to the FBI, the broad areas of personal needs if they're unmet, that will can put somebody at great risk to become a violent extremist. Our personal needs for power, achievement, affiliation, importance, purpose, morality, and excitement. And what happens is for those people who have these, you know, deep unmet needs, 
and other vulnerabilities, which I will talk about in a little bit, the the identity, the sense of belonging in a certain group, right? This is kind of similar to how someone would be prone to uh, joining a gang, becomes comforting for them because now all of a sudden they have a sense of belonging. They have a sense of identity. There's a group affiliation, you know, and the more vulnerable they are, the more risk factors they have, meaning the easier it is to radicalize somebody. So I'm gonna move on and talk about that, okay? So the next piece of my talk is going to rely heavily on a research called the Janssen, Janssen presentation. And um, basically this was published in 2016, but I think a lot of the findings are still very applicable to what's happening in our country today. Basically what they found was that in the mid 70s, there was really where the upturn of radicalization um, kind of became more prominent. It's when, you know, it, it not that it's not when it started, but it's when it heightened for us. And the activities of these extremists uh, were basically belonging to far right groups, far right ideologies, okay? And that remains to be the majority uh, of the people who tend to become extremists in the present day. And again, this research was in 2016. So, you know, four or five years ago, um, there might, some people might argue that maybe that composition is no longer the case. I don't have any re recent research uh, to talk about that um, in an educated way, but this is just up until 2016. The uh, statistics uh, that they found is that 43% of extremists, of the people they surveyed, belong to far right ideology and 21% were far left, okay? So again, right, interesting piece of researched evidence-based information and that's what this show and this talk, Transformation Tuesday, is about. It's about bringing content to you guys. That's not just my opinion, but, you know, studied by scholars in the field. So again, 43% far right, 21% uh, far left. So I'm actually, I, was, I wasn't surprised by the, the far right, you know, statistics, but I was surprised that at least 21% had far left um, ideology. I guess that's probably my stereotype and I will own that. Um, I thought it'd be a lot, uh, you know, lower than that. And they also go on to say that, you know, he advises, the researcher advises that we need to view violent extremism within the context of a national epidemic on violence. So that might be kind of hard to wrap your, our heads around, but it's, it's, I encourage you to listen to the talk I did last week on making sense of political violence, because I basically made the case for that. I basically made the case that we need to look at what happened um, on January 6th. You know, people are calling it different things, right? Riots, insurrection, people, what, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure yet, you know, what the proper terminology is. I'm calling it political violence because that's what it is essentially from an academic standpoint. Um, so I talked about in that talk that we need to look at what happened from a violence lens, not just from a political party lens. So it's interesting that, you know, 
he's also kind of advocating for the same thing. Because like I said, violence has been normalized to us. You know, we it's one of the things that in our country we know is an option, you know, for people who have who are really vulnerable to rage and disorder. So I want to put this in perspective for you. I'm also a citizen of Australia. And in Australia, you don't have access to guns. So you could be as crazy as you want to be. I mean, you know, sorry for the term, but you know what I mean? You could be as angry and dysregulated and dysfunctional as you want to be and fantasize about mass murdering people. Well, guess what? It's going to be a lot harder for you to manifest your fantasy, right? Because you're going to have a really hard time finding those weapons. You know, I'm not saying they don't exist over there, but you know, that's an example of how certain gun laws can help us um, prevent some of this national epidemic of violence that you're seeing. But I think when I think about this more deeply, I don't think there was, I don't know if there were guns involved from the people uh, that, uh, you know, um, rioted or insurrected, however, whatever term, you know, feels good to you to use on January 6th. So um, I think the the weapons were from law enforcement, which of course, you know, it's understandable that they would use that to protect themselves, absolutely. Um, but I don't know, I could be wrong about that. I don't know all the details of how the violence really escalated. Um, so again, just wanted to, you know, bring that point home of like, we need to start looking and and reflecting on our gun laws as well and how we've normalized violence in our country because that's what's going to help us mitigate the chances of a violent extremist being able to just easily access uh, weapons. The other thing that they also mentioned in this study is how the internet, okay, how the internet has sped up and fast-tracked the process of radicalization and the spread of false information, right? Because now, like I said in my talk last week, people can just say what they wanna say. They can think out loud. Nobody has to fact check them, you know? And there's just this kind of rapid uh, divide and it, it, the, the online you know, space has kind of facilitated and fast-tracked, I think, you know, a lot of hate between us and among us. And it makes sense why that would also now expedite the process of radicalization. Um, and a lot of times people who are radicalized or easily radical, not, not easily radicalized, but who tend to be vulnerable um, for radicalization are often alone, lonely, you know, socially isolated people. So that's another kind of uh, deadly or dangerous cocktail between that circumstance, right? Someone being socially isolated and alone and, you know, depressed, right? Or have, have a form of grievance and then having access to the internet and being prone to being, you know, persuaded to believe certain radical beliefs. So that's that. Um, another stat statistic I want to share with you guys, uh, according to the same study here, um, is that individuals on the far right were a lot older than individuals on the far left, okay? The meaning the people who tend to be uh, violent extremists on the far right were at, on average 38 years old, 
And on the far left, on average, they were 28 years old. So again, that's an interesting statistic. Like, I don't know, I'm just curious about, like, I wonder why that is. There are also more women on the far right uh, group that tend to be um, violent extremists. 5% um, are women and, sorry, one quarter of active individuals on the far left are women and 5% are women on the far right. So again, an interesting statistic, you know, for me. And that's just how my brain works. I'm always just kind of wondering, oh, I wonder why that is, right? So um, another interesting statistic is at least, you know how we, we usually have a stereotype that violent extremists are, you know, Republicans, so to speak. Not, I'm not saying they're violent extremists. I'm just talking about like how we tend to lump all of the group kind of together and make them make generalizations about the group. We tend to stereotype that they're not educated, that they're not, you know, they're not very, yeah, educated. And that might, that must be why they believe what they do, or that must be why they act the way they do or vote for you know, a Republican president. Well, according to the study, and again, this was in 2016, that most people who become violent extremists actually at least have some college experience. For the far right group, 45% of them have at least some college experience compared to 75% of those who belong to the far left ideology. So again, another fascinating, interesting statistic, right? That this is not for lack of education, that somebody can be radicalized and become a violent extremist and buy into, you know, dangerous, dysfunctional ideology, have, edu are educated, part, at least in part, right? So that demystic, or that um, kind of squashes that stereotype, that myth that these people are just, you know, not that smart or intelligent. Well, not according to this research, though. This is it, you guys. We're really trying to understand what this is all about. A lot of the um, folks in the far-right group have military experience. I didn't find that surprising, right? Compared with um, compared to the, 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 those in the far-left group. The one thing that seems to be consistent in the research is as a, as a risk factor is the previous engagement in criminal activity. That seems to be kind of consistent across different studies. And if you wanna also learn about this more, you can listen to episode seven of my podcast, Get Mental. This is actually episode 66. Can you believe that? Oh my God, I'm like talking every week, guys. <laughs> so anyway, episode seven, I talked about gun violence in America and I, and I utilized a, a study that the US did um, after the 9-11 attacks. And it's a very comprehensive study about, you know, risk factors and violence and so forth. And uh, it, it, it kind of supports what this study is saying in that the previous engagement in criminal activity is a known uh, or seems to be a common, you know, thread among people who commit extreme violence. Um, so I'm not surprised by that being a mental health professional but I thought that you guys, you know, might, might, that might be helpful for you to know that there's usually a lot of other factors, you know, underneath that creates a violent extremist. The other thing that they said is that the radical duration, I think this is very interesting, 
meaning the time, the, 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 the length of time that a person kind of stays in this radical ideology tend to be longer for those in the far right. They tend to have a duration span from one to five years, sorry, five years or more. So somebody, basically what this means is somebody could be sitting with all of these extreme thoughts and beliefs for at least five years or longer, right? Which lengthens the, 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 the danger that, that we're all faced in if we, we don't mitigate, if we don't, you know, have the tools to kind of circumvent that. Compared to the far, those in the far left ideology, and again, we're talking about violent extremists here, not just your regular, you know, Democrat or Republican. Compared to, to the far left uh, folks, the duration in which they can stay in that radical ideology is between one to five years. So again, to me, that's very interesting. Like, hmm, why is that? And what actually helps them to finally come out of that radicalized belief system? You know, I don't know the answer to that. I'm sure there's some studies, but again, I don't have a whole lot of time to, uh, a luxury time to invest heavily in the research. And I'm, but I'm trying to give you guys enough to, so that you can start to make an informed decision about what's happening and you can start to, you know, make up your own mind based on, based on research. So that's, uh, that's pretty much what I, what I want to say about that. Um, let's talk about some risk factors uh, other than, other than what I talked about, like criminal activity. The FBI also talks about other types of, I guess, environmental factors that can put somebody at risk. So social isolation is one of them. Um, having a grievance, some sense of like, you know, a sense that injustice has been done to you is one of, is another risk factor. Um, poor social support, meaning social support, meaning family support, uh, friends, community, you know, having a history of trauma can also be a risk factor and mental illness. People with mental illness are known, according to this research, twice as likely to engage in violent um, behaviors. But again, that is not, that doesn't mean that people who are mentally ill are the ones that are mostly the ones committing violence. You know, uh, I, I just kind of, there, there's a lot of, I know, blurriness around that. And I just want to just clarify that. Um, I have a, a, a personal take on that, but I'm not going to share that right now because it's going to derail us. But the gen, generally speaking, that's what the, the, the experts are saying, that even though people with mental illness are twice as likely to commit these acts, they are not necessarily the majority of people who end up committing it. And what that really means is a lot of these folks don't necessarily have a mental, a known mental health diagnosis. They don't necessarily have, you know, kind of a medical record that can prove that. But my take on that, and here I am, I wasn't going to talk about it and I'm going to do it anyway. My take on that, it was probably undiagnosed, you know, um, and it probably is like not something that generally meets criteria for a mental health diagnosis, but how could you not also have some kind of mental health dysfunction there if you honestly believe that violent extremism is the answer to your problems, right? Like something kind of snapped, in my opinion. 
but that's that's a, a longer more complex conversation really um so the thing I also want to share with you guys is according to this study, the most individuals who hold extreme views, according to them, do not necessarily engage in violence. So that's comforting, right? That's promising that a lot of people, despite the extreme views, are not necessarily going to act upon it. But they will be at risk for acting upon it if they have a cluster of those symptoms or vulnerability factors that I just talked about. A minute or so ago okay and you know the thing is we can't just rely on our government to protect us from this to solve this problem from us and this is the very reason why I do these talks because if we could reach one person and we could turn it around and we could break the cycle of violence and isolation in their life you don't know what you would have prevented in the future right like you and I have power you and I can help mitigate some of these things, believe it or not, by way of how we treat one another on the streets. And I don't want to sound like I'm preaching here, but I just really, really, this is backed up by research. This is not just opinion in that communities are protective, healthy, loving, tolerant communities can protect the people, the families, the citizens that are within it. And we can, you know, how do societies change anyway? Think about that. It changes through communities. So imagine if we all bought into that and function in that way where, you know what? I may not be able to change, you know, the political landscape on a massive level, but I can try to still do my part here in my neighborhood, in how I talk to my neighbor who maybe put up a flag that I don't agree with, right? How can I still kind of show up practicing love, tolerance, and respect? Because in the end, that's really what we're all wanting to preserve, right? We're wanting to preserve not just our safety and security, but our values of love, respect, and kindness. You know, that's why I shared that post in my personal page for some of you who, it's, it's, some of this is public because it's a work personal page about that experience I had where I witnessed one of my neighbor or both of my neighbors who, you know, we know openly vary in their political views, but that's never been an issue for them or for us. And, you know, after the incident on January 6th, we saw them take both of their kids to the park like they always have. And they continued, you know, their friendship, despite kind of how divisive the national rhetoric and conversation was. And I really needed to need to see that and know that that day because I was feeling really scared and hopeless, to be honest with you. You know, not hopeless suicidal, but just hopeless about the possibility of us coexisting in that way. Um, so that's what I mean by it's not just up to our governments to fix this problem. We have power and actually we have responsibility. We have a social responsibility to one another to lower the temperature and to really check ourselves and try, 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 try to practice real tolerance and respect and kindness. You know, it, it, it only good, beautiful things will come of that. You know, it's like, it's like, why not? Why not try it? Okay. So thank you for letting me share that. Um, <laughs> I just, yeah, I'm just such a lover that way. So 
before we end, um, I'm wondering if people have any questions, comments, concerns. How are you guys doing? How are you processing this? How are you making sense of this? Um, you know, feel free to chime in or type away if you have any thoughts or you need kind of immediate support or clarification. You know, for me, doesn't sound like there's any of that. So I'm going to take it as you guys are doing great. And if you want to private message me about this, then please feel free to do so. A couple of things I want to say before we end is I just want to remind you guys again that there is not one single formula to predict who's going to become a violent extremist. Okay, that's why academ academics research this stuff. That's why there's a whole, you know, industry called threat assessment professionals dedicated to understanding the patterns and the path to violence. We look at the cluster of symptoms. But if you are noticing anything off in your neighbor and your family member, this is where mental health intervention becomes really critical. Say something. Hey, are you doing okay? Is there anything you need? I just want you to know I'm here for you if you if you ever need anything. Keep an eye on that person, you know? It's it, you're not going to be able to like fix the person, but you can be a resource. Or if it's you, if you're the one kind of feeling like, oh man, I'm just starting to really not like people. I'm just starting to really like want to withdraw and isolate and, you know, have like a lot of depressive thoughts or anger. Those are signs that it might be time to talk to a professional, okay? Because it, first of all, you deserve the help and support. Secondly, you don't have to suffer alone or in private. Thirdly, therapists are not going to judge you. You know, believe it or not, most of the time, you're not gonna be shamed for having thoughts of wanting to hurt someone else, right? I mean, of course, there's legal issues around that, but meaning if somebody says, hey, you know, I'm just, I'm just really hating like this particular group and I can't stand them. You know, one of my clients recently said, I'm really running out of empathy. Like Cecile, I, I'm just not feeling empathy anymore. And I'm, I'm, I'm really, you know, I don't like that about myself. But the, the Air Force, uh, the veteran uh, Air Force, I think Ashley is her first name, the one who unfortunately died, which just breaks my heart. But that person who died, the context was my client was saying, I'm really just not having empathy for that person, you know? So things like that, we can start to help kind of sensitize you again, right? Because that's a form of desensitization because, you know, for, for various reasons, right? Um, but you don't want to not have empathy. I mean, that's also not healthy, right? So just kind of, you know, do a self-check, look around you, see if there's anyone who might need mental health support and just see how you can how you can help them. And you don't have to drill it down their throat. You could just be a presence. You could just be like, I'm here for you if you want to talk. You know, I'm here for you if you need anything. If you've been in therapy before, I say normalize that. Self-disclose that if it feels comfortable, you know. These are the little but significant ways that we can help create more peace and that we can help to practice the values that we're really trying to preserve in this country, okay? Lastly, what I also want to say from a threat assessment perspective, just to give you guys a broader perspective, is that our law enforcement that day on 1-6, and again, this is not to blame. I think part of what happened is they did not measure adequately or predict, not even predict, they didn't ascertain the threat, you know, enough 
to be prepared for a response. In my opinion, they were underprepared. They, they underestimated, that's the word I was looking for, they underestimated the violent threat, you know, on that day. And I hope that this becomes a lesson. And people in the threat assessment community are saying that similar things. Because yes, you can't control what violent extremists are going to do, right? But if you have a response, if you have a strategy, if you really do what we call a threat assessment, you know, um, that's what it is, a violent th a threat, assess a threat assessment. If you did a proper one, you would have contingency, contingency plans for a low level of risk, medium level of risk, high level of risk for violence. And, you know, I don't know this to be a fact, but from a person who used to do threat assessments from a, from a workplace level, and then some of the threat assessment professionals have heard that that is the one thing where we could have done better as well, is to be more prepared. So hopefully come inauguration, you know, that they are going to be even more prepared uh, to to mitigate and to address potential violence and for us not to underestimate this because, you know, I think collectively we're all just hoping it goes peacefully. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about that. Again, to give you guys a broader perspective that this isn't just um, about you know, one party over another that you need to look at it from a violence standpoint, lens standpoint, you need to look at it from a radicalization standpoint, you need to look at it from a, a violent extremist standpoint that most people don't fall in that category. Most people are in the middle, don't want to be violent, don't want to cause harm, okay? Just to give you guys some proper perspective on it. So, I hope that's helpful. As always, I hope you guys are taking care of yourselves. Thank you so much for listening. I hope uh, you found this, you know, informative and inspiring as far as, you know, kind of thinking, thinking broadly about these issues. And like I always say, be well, be gentle, get mental, because we all have issues. Bye for now. Thanks for joining us today on Get Mental with Cecile Ahrens. To learn more about Cecile, become a sponsor or guest on Get Mental, or if you have any questions about mental health, visit TranscendTherapyCA.com. That's TranscendTherapyCA.com. Join us next week at this same time for more talk on all things mental health on Get Mental with Cecile Ahrens. Don't